Welcome to Standpoint, a podcast from India discussing global issues of the moment. I'm Shruti Kapella and I'm Orgo Sengupta. Today our Standpoint episode is on the age of disruption. In recent years words like disruption and digital are everywhere. These words try and capture the twin themes of technology innovation and rapid economic and social change. At the same time we've seen a churning in democracies across the world. India captures both the disruption and the churning. What global role can India play if any in this age of disruption? Our guest today is entrepreneur, author and India's preeminent tech guru Nandan Nilakini. Thanks Nandan for joining us today. Thank you Arya, thank you for having me. No, oh, it's a pleasure. So, I was just looking back at your book Reimagining India in 2009. It's been a decade since then. What do you think has changed? Well, uh, you know, I wrote that book uh, in a time of uh, a tremendous optimism about what are the possibilities in india so it's a very optimistic book uh and i think uh, now while i'm still an optimist i think i'm a little more guarded optimist because uh while the trends that uh, i talked about are largely relevant uh not everything has panned out the way i had imagined uh so i think but i think the fundamental uh, notion that uh ideas take root then ideas become mainstream i think that that concept is still very much valid but when you say some of the things that haven't taken root uh, what were the things that you were would have been optimistic about in 2009 that you're more guarded about now no i think for example uh, you know one of the big things that happened in india was the realization that education is very important and families began to realize that education was the key to social love and other economic mobility and so you saw this massive push starting by around 2000 for universal education and so on but uh, unfortunately in the last decade the uh, outcomes have not improved while enrollments have gone up kids are in school uh, the number of them who can read or write or do arithmetic is still as as poor as ever so i think you know i definitely thought we would see a lot more progress on education in the last decade that's just one example but i can go on and on about different things but yeah sure yeah your note of caution is also as it were coincident with uh, the kind of caution on globalization so india's take off was also coterminous had happened at the same time when there was a global consensus on globalization so in the last few years we've seen that there's been a pushback against globalization whether we take brexit as an indicator or the rise of Trump uh so we'll come back to the india story and education in a minute but could you also sort of say now where you see globalization technology and what role india will play with it no i think definitely there is uh, uh we are in era where uh, globalization does not have the same momentum that it had mm-hmm. and in some instances actually it's 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 uh, sort of going back yes i th- i think the big era of uh, globalization in the last 40 years was you know starting with the fall of the berlin yes. wall the rise of the internet That's right. the rise of containerization which made shipping very easy china joining the wto in 2000 so all these were led to a massive era of globalization and india also started its economic reforms and becoming more global in in that period except that i think india didn't fully leverage the what globalization could have done for instance no i think when you look at the history of uh, the developing countries in asia whether mm. it was japan korea mm. southeast asia or or china mm. they essentially started with manufacturing then growing up the value chain making mm. more sophisticated products mm. cars and mm. so on mm. and uh, they used that to bring you know billions millions of people into better mm. economic mm. Uh, living mm. standards mm. 
but that era is over partly because globalization itself is in uh you know is in a bit of a slowdown that's right uh, essentially i think because in the western countries which promoted globalization earlier uh the fruits of globalization didn't really reach everybody and so mm. inequality went up and the middle classes began to feel that globalization was not improving the living standard they were losing jobs and so on so there was a political backlash on globalization and so today india can't follow the metaphor or the or the or the model of the other asian countries because there's no global markets uh, not as or will not be as open as they used to be That's and right. more importantly uh, manufacturing itself is undergoing dramatic change yes. thanks to automation robotics and so on so you know the kind of jobs where you could have millions of people making shoes or something mm. that that's actually that era is ending yes so we have a bigger challenge because of that yes. so what is india's model as in is yes. it still uh, aspiring to be a global leader or should we follow a protectionist turn as we are seeing in some economic policies like say an e-commerce policy that the government recently well, announced i think uh, first of all i think it's not that we have to uh, we have to continue to invest in globalization because that's still required i'm just saying that the the free pass that uh, many countries had between 1980 and say 20 2012 uh, that that period is over so it'll be a little more difficult but we we should it's in our interest to be uh, in a more globalized world because we need to sell our products and services abroad and we'll be the only young country in an aging world and therefore indians can be the people who support global economies and that requires freer trade and freer migration and so on so i think it's very much in india's strategic interest to support globalization except that on the other side there may be responses that's right and now coming to the other side as in in india we are used to hyphenating ourselves with china and trying to see as to what that interrelation is like and uh, tom friedman had written in the forward to your book something that seems perhaps a bit too optimistic or misplaced now and and he's i quote that he said every time i go to india people ask me about china every time i go to china people ask me about india who's going to win between these two emerging giants i always give them the same answer india and china are like two giant super highways and each has a big question mark hanging over its future can we even see the two together today well you know i think the the jury is still out on that i think uh, china is entering uh, starting about 2015 uh, china got into a uh, period of rapid aging uh, and that had to do with the one child policy and so on so that led to uh, uh, you know sudden drop in population uh, so china's challenge will be they'll become old before they are rich and that has implications on healthcare on pensions and so on so i think uh, India still has a good 15 20 years of growth possible because of its demographics. So I think uh, we still have a lot to do on that. Uh, but I think there's optimism around what was called the demographic dividend. I mean it's an interesting problem of population in India because in the cold war era the problem was India was overpopulated. This was always seen to be a country which could would be overrun by too many people and then of course with globalization with the opening of the markets the same story was turned around and our population and our young population was seen to be a dividend for as it were a new market to be captured but i think today again one could say that there needs to be some caution given the idea of jobless growth uh, the idea of the young unskilled so how do you see you know if this is the potential it's not simply a captive market how do you make as it were the young effective and agentive in in the new era yeah so let me just uh, lay out a few things first mm. is that 
the model followed by China and so on mm. of using manufacturing and exports. Mm. That model is not as accessible to us because of the various changes happening, automation in manufacturing and the yes. deglobalization efforts. Right. So that that that's there, but it's not as big as it, it used right. to be. Uh, the other thing is that we have the advantage that we have our fertility rates are dropping quite rapidly, and mm. therefore we'll have this huge bump of people in the working age of 15 to 65, mm -hmm. which means that that's the time when countries have the best economic uh, mm. growth. So that's the good news. But uh, the fact that we haven't made enough progress on education mm -hmm. and the fact that we don't, we're not going to have enough manufacturing jobs that's right. means that we'll have to rethink and reimagine the growth pattern of the future. Mm. And Where do you see that going? Yeah, so is I it going to be technology-driven or... Yeah, so my um, this again uh, my point of view, which is that uh, it has to be domestic-led growth because of the fact that you have the challenges on the globalization, and it has to be small company-led growth, uh, and you know expecting a few companies to hire a few hundred thousand people, I think that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, India is a nation of small entrepreneurs. We have you know, anywhere from thirty to fifty million small businesses. Some of them are invol involuntary businesses because they can't get jobs. But if those if those firms become more efficient, they they grow, they hire people, uh, then they will create a lot of jobs. So, and the second thing is, I think services will create a lot of jobs. So, I think it will shift from manufacturing export to domestic services, uh, domestic rather export manufacturing and large company model to domestic services small company model. So, you still seem quite optimistic today. Yeah, I mean, you ought to. Find something to do. Right? So this is the, again, the, to go back to the India-China comparison, one of the interesting departures that uh, India and China represent in the story of globalization is that the state, in a way, did not shrink with the rise of globalization. In fact, arguably, the Chinese state became more powerful. You could say even the Indian state, uh, if we take Aadhaar as an example of that, also expanded in its capacities, both in terms of... So where do you see now the state... In facing this challenge, this is a we are again on the brink of an election. I'm not trying to draw you into that debate, but you know the question of job opportunities, uh, technology, uh, the issue around, as it were, Aadhaar, social welfare, minimum income, a whole raft of new questions yeah. on the table. Uh, sure. So how do we sort of calibrate the question of the state uh, once more? Yeah. So first of all, I think uh, uh, Aadhaar was a response to. Uh, the fact that India was building a welfare state. I mean, if you go back and look at the history, the bulk of the social welfare programs actually began after the year 2000. Mm -hmm. Universal education, Sarva Siksha Abhiyan right. began in 2000. Uh, the national health uh, activities, pensions, scholarships, all these were post-2000 phenomena because economic growth created some amount of surplus uh, money that could be used for you know addressing the larger issues of creating a welfare or social security net. And that and the realization at that point that a large amounts of money were going to be spent on welfare, but uh, the underlying system of identification was was inadequate, leading to craft and uh, corruption and diversion, is what led to things like Aadhaar. So Aadhaar was a response to the need to have much better systems of identification and targeting for welfare purposes. So, and today what has happened is because of the last few years, the investment in uh, giving everybody an ID like Aadhaar. 350 million people have got bank accounts through the Jandan program. Uh, mobile phones, we have more than a billion mobile phones. We now have the infrastructure for 
direct benefit transfer. And that's why you see that the political discourse is now talking about direct benefits, universal basic income. Yes. Uh, all so these programs, all, scheme is also a fact, targeted scheme. Yeah, all yes. the political parties have mm-hmm. implemented some kind of... And this is enabled because of the infrastructure we have today to electronically uh, send money in real time into a billion accounts. Mm-hmm. So it's so that has enabled these kind of conversations. But that's on the welfare side. That's the social security side. That doesn't address the aspirational side, mm-hmm. which is when you have this large young population, that's correct. Uh, how do you create enough jobs for them? Mm-hmm. And if the jobs are not going to come through globalization, if the jobs are not going to come through manufacturing, mm-hmm. then what is the domestic activity that can drive these jobs? That's correct. And that is frankly not been fully answered and... Uh, a large part of the angst is that, that there are all these young people, uh, but there are not enough jobs for them. And I think the whenever this jobs question does come up as in the answer, which is a double-edged sword for me, is always technology. That, you know, there will be tech jobs. We, India is the leading player in the services sector. And it always reminds me that the way in which you spoke about welfare in the age of global capital, as in it seems very similar to Nehru building dams that these are going to be the temples of modern India. And this is going to solve our problems, phase one, industrialization. The same way in which dams were supposed to solve our modernization problem in the 50s, it seems to me that tech, digital, artificial intelligence are seen as slogans, you know, solving our problem for the 21st century. So do you think that given that experience and that dams have also led to large amount of ecological damage and so on, do you think that... uh, Digital first is really the answer to all of India's woes in the 21st century. No, no, I think no sloganing, sloganeering is the answer for anything. So I think we have to think of it a little more thoughtfully. I think the, f- the fact of the matter is that how do you A, create a welfare safety net, which is what we have now. And, and technology has enabled that safety net because you can electronically, without loss, transmit money into somebody's bank account in real time at scale. That's something that's a very very good capability for making a welfare state uh, possible. So that's one part. But I think we also have to think of how technology can be used to enable uh, learning. So how do we use the power of technology to get more people to get educated, get access to skills, and so on? How do we use technology to make small small firms more efficient and productive so they hire more people? So I think all we have to think through the lens of job creation and how technology will enable job creation. It's not just saying technology, technology. It's about thinking through the what is the architecture of the future of jobs and companies and enabling that through technology. So, so certainly, I agree with you on the fact that we have to think thoughtfully about technology and job creation. But let's ponder for a moment about what the negative impact of technology might also be. Because at this point of time, it's seen as goody-goody. And you... As you would have seen the Netflix series Black Mirror, which is painting a bit of a dystopian future, which is which is here. And this is sort of we've seen in the aftermath of Cambridge Analytica. People are surprised by the way in which technology has effects that they didn't intend it to have. So do you think that anything about and particularly what I have in mind is artificial intelligence? Do you think that anyone anything in artificial intelligence worries you? No, I think uh uh there are many applications of AI. AI is like, a, it's like electricity. It's a horizontal capability. You can use it anywhere. And uh, one of the things in the West is a lot of focus of AI is on job automation. And that's obviously worrying. And in fact, in, in the West, I mean, for example, self-driving cars, autonomous cars, uh, means that uh, you, you, know, you don't need anyone to drive a car and uh, 
millions of taxi drivers will be out of a job, millions of truck drivers will be out of a job, and so on. So there's one job thing. Then the, the whole issue of uh, uh, AI and decision making, because then there's a whole value and ethics piece of it. And how if the, if the uh, AI is doing uh, decisions based on data, and the data has bias built into it, then the AI will have bias. So those kind of issues, ethics issues. And then, of course, the concentration of data which is happening, which is a few companies or a few governments having uh, vast amounts of data collected and profiting it from it through advertising and so on. And what are the consequences of that in terms of uh, censorship, in terms of... Uh, surveillance. Surveillance, in mm. terms of uh, uh, political meddling, which That's happened right. in the U.S. election. So, obviously, we are, we are seeing some of the negative uh, consequences of technology, especially so in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I think when I think about applying AI in India or tech in India in general, mm -hmm. I would see it from the lens of uh, job creation. I would see it in the sense of... Uh, using it to create a perpetual learning model for our people about improving the quality of healthcare and education so or legal services. So my view is these technologies, if properly used, and, and there's an if there, if properly used, can have enormous benefit. So this actually raises an interesting question on the role of the expert and not just the entrepreneur. Uh, so Orgo mentioned Nehru, and Nehru, of course, was dependent on a coterie of experts. But we've seen particularly in Britain, but also in America, how political representatives have degraded the, the, the technocracy, as it were. I mean, the fact that, as it were, technocracy is overrunning the political process and so on. Where do you think India is? I mean, India, of course, has seen a bit of a redivision of labor in the last five years on where experts sit with the remaking of the Planning Commission and, and so on. Uh, so today, where do you see, I mean, how could you today, if not as an entrepreneur, but as an expert, uh, because you, of course, headed the Technology Commission for India, quite a, which led to Aadhaar. Uh, today, where would you see that relationship? Uh, how can experts become politically responsible, if I can put it like that? No, I think uh, the Western challenge is also a larger disaffection with elites. I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, the elites proposed or promoted globalization, but the globalization was not, uh, you know, was not mass in the sense it was for a small group and led to inequality and so on. So that's a different situation in the West. In the Indian situation, I think uh, experts or elites have the same responsibility that they have to uh, help in providing uh, ideas or expertise or solutions which will address these fundamental challenges of education, health, inequality and jobs. So should they sit in the government or this is what the question is because there's such a lot of, uh, so there's this kind of uh, interesting unfolding story of expertise and polit politics in India with, you know, um, even say senior economists being ambivalent about political power, even though they might be wanting to kind of bring in, say, a minimum made, uh, income program. We've heard such sort of uh, responses from the former RBI governor uh, recently. So I was just wondering, so how would now you calibrate or see the question? Because especially now with the rise of technology, we are going to be dependent on experts, right? And uh, I mean, they have a bigger role in the economy. Uh, you know, the economy is much more um, technical, if I can put it like that. Uh, sure. uh, and and the political relationship between tech, expertise, okay, we might not be like the West, uh, but where do you think 
we ought to be? Where where should the kind of political uh, role be? Is it just yeah? That's, that's no. I think that's, uh, uh, because I think there is a question of responsibility with yeah, sure. the question of technology. Yeah. No. I I, I think obviously the uh, uh, political establishment mm-hmm. which is uh, elected through due process yeah. are the legitimate deciders of priorities of a country. So you know in terms sure. of. Uh, you know what to do mm. and how to do mm. it, and so on. But I think uh, uh, there are experts who can provide inputs or ideas, and they some of them get picked up. Mm-hmm. And if the uh, and if they have the right uh, motives, that that's fine. But remember that it's 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 always a a, a marketplace of ideas in the sense that uh, in any country, you know, different ideas are put forth, and uh, you know, ideas come out. Dime a dozen. They come out from different people of different ideological persuasions, and then they compete. And then the political establishment sees whether the value of taking on these ideas. So it's 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 a it's a fairly democratic process of idea selection. So this country has had experts who worked in the government. It has experts who have been outside the government but had a consulting role. Uh, this they have fought for their ideas. Some of them have succeeded. So it's like any other place. It's it's a it's a it's a competitive, democratic selection going on. And I think that you've done all of the above. And I hear that answer as no more political forays for you, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've already said that. I don't want. To <laughs> I mean, I mean, to, I, to just to be a bit naughty, I just recently read Richard Sharma's book on the road to democracy. I don't know if you've read it, and yeah. and there's an anecdote that features you in it, yeah. where where India's what public. Does it say? Where India's public historian uh, Ramchandra Guha says that if you know India will be divided into north and south, and the new the first prime minister of South India would be uh, you, you know, <laughs> so, uh, and uh, you know for there's listeners, spe- you are, yeah, you're several speculative aspects to that statement. Yes, yeah, so which one do you like the most? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to a subject that uh, you're passionate about, and you started with education. Now, yeah. uh, in your book in 2009, you spoke about quite fondly about your days at IIT Bombay and that you're a product of a public university system and which worked well for you at that point of and time. And for you, you went to national law school. And for me as well. Yeah. I went to JNU. See? JNU. So we're all products <laughs> yes. of a public university system. But as you mentioned in your book rather ruefully that the system was crumbling. And uh, when you, as a entrepreneur, wanted to do something about it, of course, things were done. But there were all kinds of questions asked as to why so much money had to be poured in into making a hostel, for example. What's ailing our university system? Well, I think... Uh, uh, First of all, I think all of us, uh, and certainly the three of us, and certainly most Indians, have benefited hugely from a taxpayer-funded, low-cost education system, which has brought us to where we are. And that's very important to realize, because uh, in a place like the U.S. today, the high cost of higher education is a huge barrier to upward mobility. So the rich can send their children to Ivy League colleges, but others can't. And student loans is more than a trillion dollars of debt. So I think we have benefited from that. But... Clearly, we have to do a lot more to make our universities uh, much better in quality and so on. But I must say, I mean, you know, I've been involved with uh, the IITs and there's a remarkable change in terms of more research, more young professors coming, uh, more capacity, you know, the number of students, much more. Uh, But it's a slow, you know, building universities is not, uh, you know, it takes 800 years for Oxford kind of thing. So, or 300 years for Yale. So it takes years and decades to make universities uh, 
And of course, Cambridge. So eight hundred. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't want to leave out Cambridge. Well, maybe seven hundred ninety. No, no, no. It's eight hundred plus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so I think you know these are not things that you can turn on a dime or so. It's going to take years. So I think, but there's definitely progress. Is it adequate? Of course, it's not. But the other thing is that I think is the uh, good development is the rise of uh, well-funded private universities, uh, and I think uh, that's the good news, which is that people are willing to fund. private universities i'm involved with something called iihs which is the institute for human ha- settlement which is a urbanization kind of university but there are many ashoka has built a very fine liberal arts university in delhi uh, there's azim premji university and so so but i think likely to is it likely unlike the public universities uh, from which i've certainly benefited Uh, that there is a new kind of inequality that is also coming in in with private universities and there's a new paradox emerging in india india's aspiration that everyone wants to go to a private university but they would like a government job right part of oh. it is there is a lot of you know in terms yeah. of aspirations you could and in a way uh, you know uh, reduce it uh, to that uh, the the job crisis no, crisis no, I, i think uh, probably to i mean look obviously the job crisis is leading to people with uh, phd is applying to work in you know yes. uh, so that's that's that's, that's one, a different that's, matter yes it's a different thing and uh, because government jobs have security pay well and so on so and there are no other jobs to take I think the private education thing is also happening because you know India is spending today billions of dollars. Indians are spending to go abroad That's for right. the undergraduate education, you know, to the US, Australia, That's the right. UK, and even if a fraction of that was invested in India to build world-class universities, uh, that would be also a way to you know have universities here. And because clearly people are willing to pay for these That's things. Right. So I think it's more of that that's happening. But I mean, again, the question. Yes, I I see that, and I think that 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 that's a private university model has been able to sort of circumvent or at least produce a new kind of competition. But one of the 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 goals of public universities was also things like social equality and uh, and the lack of bar. In fact, even affirmative action that it brought in, which I don't think the private universities need to adhere to, and and which is also producing a new kind of. i would say inequality stratification oh, yeah. criticism in this country that we will probably get two very different tiers of education in in india yeah but at the end of the day the choice is not between public in india and private in india the the choice is between private in india and private abroad mm-hmm. and we do know that you know indians few hundred thousand indians study abroad yes and spend billions of dollars in fees and so on mm-hmm. in, in the uk or in mm-hmm. the us or mm-hmm. in canada or australia and uh, they are you know that that could be done here yeah that point is well taken, well taken but that yes. i think is really skimming the surface because the fact is when you think about private universities at scale in india and i may be mistaken but i think about the 300 so called private universities in chatisgarh which are essentially corner stores okay and this something like this operates all across the country so when you so do you see that this problem and i agree with you that is not just about private and public but perhaps it's about quality so yeah. do you think private is capable of producing quality at scale for the millions who are aspiring Which not just the people who would have, have not just the people who would have gone to ivy league otherwise no it's a different matter whether whether these universities have the aspiration hmm. but absolutely i mean like the work we do at ihs is training thousands of municipal workers but when will there be 20000 ihs ah okay but that's you need more again i mean no but what I does said, it need that's really the no, I, i think 
starting and setting up university making them top class is a very it's a marathon race it's sure. not a sprint uh, but i think the fact is if you look at the institute of excellence program which mm. they uh, there are quite a few at least uh, 20 30 uh, applicants who are well funded with big ambition and want to have quality and want to provide access so mm. i think it's all there so you think it is possible to do at scale though yeah and you have to open it up because uh, not doing it is the less is the worst option no? because one of the achievements of our public universities was actually that they've been cutting edge research uh, universities uh, so even in the medical sec- sector and where we've had a longer history of the private no, no, sector no i'm all play. for public universities i'm not saying don't do that too no no i i say that but i'm just saying that how are we going to ensure that the private universities say barring the one or two we can take easily names of which are research uh, centric as well that they are not just shops they are not just as a, which is what orgo is referring to which are beyond regulation without social access and they are they are uh, because there is a higher education deficit no no the fact that there are aberrations in this does not mean that we should not attempt sure. to create a high quality higher education sector in india which is privately funded mm-hmm. because there's such a big gap between aspiration and reality i mean the biggest industry in india is the coaching industry that's right why is there a coaching industry because there are only a few hundred seats in iit mm-hmm. and few lakh people applying or a mm-hmm. few hundred mm-hmm. uh, jobs in the ias and few lakh people applying that's right. and you have now people going at the age of you know 8 or something to quota that's to right. prepare for this so we have created this incredibly ruthless uh, para economy uh, yeah, yeah because para-economy. because of lack Education. of opportunity yeah so creating opportunity is the name of the game right Okay so let's uh, conclude yes. that uh, it's been a long journey from Patni in what was it the late 70s early yeah. 80s uh, and back again to, to Infosys. Infosys now as director uh, as non executive chairman yeah. so how's the if you were to sum up that journey in a couple of lines how's it been well it's uh, you know life is a circle <laughs> <laughs> this is very hindu <laughs> philosophical of you <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. i mean i know uh, well you know I, i've had a very interesting life and uh, a lot of twists and turns some of them anticipated some of them were completely serendipitous so i think uh, it, but it's been fun all, all along and i look forward to doing more contribution in the years to come and how do you see future big tech companies like infosys emerging in india what is the next generation of of no i think india is a very companies? thriving uh, a startups ecosystem uh, uh, place is buzzing with entrepreneurship uh, young people with huge ambition and huge confidence are emerging mm-hmm. i live in bangalore which is at the epicenter of this revolution i I live in Kormangla, which is the epicenter of <laughs> Bangalore, because mm. with, within walking distance of my house, there are 300 startups. Right. So I think there's huge energy, and uh, it's a very future-looking thing. And you have people who have big ideas on how to change agriculture, how to change education, how to change healthcare mm. at scale mm. using innovation. So it's a very exciting time. Oh. So I think you may say you are a guarded optimist, but, but I think we can drop the guarded by the <laughs> yes, end. Yes, you're it. an optimist. You're very much an optimist, <laughs> and that's a good optimistic note to end on. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Do join us for future episodes of Standpoint. Thanks, Nandan. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you.